0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Mind Matters. On today's show, we're going to be discussing postmodern politics. And when I think of postmodern politics, I think of Groucho Marx's definition of politics in general, when he said that it is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying all of the wrong remedies. When you think about politics today, Bill. Mostly on the left side of the spectrum, you know, with all of the talk about whether transgendered men should be able to abort children that they can't have, and you know, all of these different kinds of crazy topics. Um, it makes you wonder what the heck is going on. Is it just, you know, like I said, the is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. Is that a sign of madness, hysteria? Is it stupidity? Uh, is it just the human condition that we just don't know what's going on and sometimes we go off the rails? Or is there something a little bit more involved? Is there something you know more sinister? Is there a more sinister element, a strategy involved in terms of you know, duping people and using confusion in order to gain power? So on today's show, we're going to be taking a look at a chapter from Stephen, the philosopher Stephen Hicks's book, Explaining Postmodernism. And it's chapter six. He discusses postmodern strategy. And he kind of dissects all of the premises that postmodernism is based on and then looks at it in terms of how it could be used to benefit an agent, you know, gaining some sort of power for whatever reason, you know, just in order to accrue power to yourself. Why is it that there are so many contradictions in, you know, our the postmodern way of thinking? whether it's, you know, that tolerance is good and dominance is bad, except for when we dominate everyone. technology is bad and destructive, but it's unfair that, you know, people don't have equal access to technology, so we have to get technology to as many people as possible. Values are subjective, but sexism and racism are totally bad, and that there's no actual such thing as truth, but... We're, we postmodernists can tell it like it is, because that's the truth. You know, we know the truth, but there is no such thing as truth. So that's what we're going to be discussing today. Um, Harrison,
1: where do you want to take it from there? Well, I think one of the, one of the things I most liked about this chapter was um, how Hicks looks at the, like the explanations for why this stuff is going on. Like, um, you know, being a philosopher, like philosophers are very ordered in the way they you know, think and lay out their points. So, he, you know, in the previous part of the book, he looks at kind of like the origins of some of the ideas that came together to to lead to you know what we call postmodernism, like uh, you know certain uh, epistemological views and and then views on the nature of reality too. But um, but why they coalesced in the form that they did and and how they're linked up with the politics. So he's kind of trying to uh, like reason out the the possible reasons for how this took the shape that it did and so he gives a few different possibilities like one is that I think this was like the Kierkegaardian and and or Kantian response I don't know if Kant was in, uh, included in this one but as a kind of um, reaction to more generally as a kind of reaction to having your sacred cow like butchered which is um um, it's, so it's kind of like a self-defensive mechanism to take a, a, a skeptical epistemological position. So, like, um, um, so if you take an example of a person who is like in the in the church and has like a traditional um, traditional worldview, in that sense, it's like when when confronted with the um, the criticisms of your worldview that seem really good, it's like a response will be well, um, based on this epistemological. You know, philosophy. We can't know any of these things to be true, so so we can't trust in our reason. So, therefore, I can be secure in you know keeping my beliefs, even though I can't defend them against your arguments. And so that would be one reason for, for, um, for taking this kind of um, skeptical, uh, skeptical view of of epistemology. And then another response would be, um, or another. Um, reason for the, com- like the, the commingling of this sceptical epistemology with leftist politics would be um, the, the, the Machiavellian res- uh, response. So, <clears throat> well, to back up a bit, um, f- first we have to make that connection. So, so it's just, he observes, you know, looking at these philosophers and the way things have gone, that, uh, that postmodernism, like the philosophy, uh, the, the philosophical currents that come together in this scepticism, um, Seem tied with leftist politics, but not so much um, politics on the right. It seems to be like this this union of of leftist, like socialist politics, with skepticism. So, taking that, then we can then he you know he asks, well, how do we explain that? So, there are a few um, a few ways that we can that like that a few uh, a few ways in which someone can come to a skeptical position and the the response as like the self-defense mechanism was one of them but once you have this this link between the the politics and the philosophy then you have uh, multiple like motivations potential motivations for that and so one would be well um so you have to look at how the how those two things are weighted and the way he breaks it down is either the epistemology is is primary and the politics are just secondary um or the the politics are primary and the epistemology is secondary, or they're kind of equal. And if they're equal, then you're just kind of in a state of confusion and um, and contradiction. Um, so, which is possible because people, you know, people are contradictory and believe contradictory things. But he, so he looks at these three these three examples and tries to figure out which one seems more plausible. And the first one that is if the epistemology is primary. So these are people who um, who. Really like are are true believers in you know extreme skepticism that we can't know we can't really know anything reason doesn't really exist you know truth is relative or doesn't exist etc like all these kind of um, relativistic um, and skeptical positions that is the main thing that they are um, that they believe you know that they're that's their position essentially their party platform but the the he kind of makes um, just kind of dispatches that one pretty easily because because of the observation that it's intimately tied with left-wing politics. Because if it was just the epistemology that was most important, then you'd get all kinds of political positions that are tied with that epistemology. So you'd get a a wide diversity of political opinions tied to that um, skeptical epistemology. But you don't have that. You You have it intimately tied with leftist politics so he says that's unlikely what's more likely would be either than one of the next two options so the second one would be that the politics is the most important thing that the 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 postmodernists um position their like their core beliefs and core core values essentially are in the political domain in their political positions and the epistemology must come secondary and that's <clears throat> like that's i think you'd you'd have to You'd have to choose that in, probably in any example where you have someone who is, um, well, no, no. Um, this is just one example of when you take when you take anyone who has like a, a skeptical epistemology like that. There are going to be um, fundamental beliefs that that are beneath that like veneer of of skepticism, regardless of whether whether it's politics or just some other kind of like implicit philosophical like presuppositions. In the case of politics, though, you can identify. Uh, you know, the, uh, a specific political position, and that is the uh, all the things that come along with you know the leftist leftist politics for the past like fifty years or more. So the you can and you can see that in just the the direction that their politics have been going. You know, so it's um, the 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 core evils in the world are you know racism, sexism, transgenderism, um, et cetera, all the isms, and uh, you know fascism um, and. Those are the primary concerns, and the epistemology isn't so much isn't so important. The skepticism isn't so much so much uh, isn't so important. So what Hicks argues in this in these sections of this chapter is that the epistemology seems more like a, a rhetorical device. It's a persuasion technique. It's a way of winning the argument without having to win the argument. So it's it's basically just putting putting your opponent on the defensive. So you you aren't really convinced that that uh, skepticism you know is a valid kind of philosophical position. You just ha- you just um, you use it when it's nece- when it's um, not necessary when it's convenient to use it. So if you're having an argument with someone and they've actually got um, you know decent points that you can't really respond to, well you ignore the ignore the content of those arguments and bring the discussion back to ep- epistemology. It's like the it's the academic way it's the academic um version of you know you when you're having an argument with someone and y- you you can't counter their opinions so you, their views so you just say oh well that's just your opinion it's like well how do you respond to that well okay yeah maybe it is just my opinion or or um well you can't respond to that because to that for that person it's like they're the evidence won't work so it becomes oh well that's just your opinion how do you actually know that to be true you can't actually know that to be true and so then um because quantum physics proves it or you know or relative relativity theory proves it so you get into a discussion on on epistemology and how we can know things and how we can know whether things are true or whether tr- truth even exists and you've totally sidestepped the the actual um maybe like policy issue that's that's at uh you know that's in contention so this is what Hicks calls the kind of the Machiavellian st- strategy it's it is purely a, a power game on the part of the person using this this skepticism um, in a in a political argument basically um, so so it's basically just a way of getting your opponent to to shut up and to to kind of um, well to win the argument without actually winning the argument mm-hmm. and that's that's the, the main purpose of it. It's not to not to engage in any kind of um like actual debate about the the issues at hand. It's to just totally undercut any of the arguments from the beginning by um by blocking off any discussion of it because because there's no use talking about it because you know, because A, B, and C. Um So that's the the kind of well, that's the Machiavellian strategy. Did you have something to say about it?
2: Well yeah. Um I mean the implications of this are, are immense. Um, and as I was reading this chapter, I was thinking that there are so many individuals right now in the left, in the U.S. and elsewhere, who have adopted these strategies, maybe uh, not even ever having read any material on postmodernism. It's permeated academia in the U.S. and in the West. Uh, it's become part of the very fabric, I think, of uh, political social and cultural discourse in the West as well. And uh, we've referred to this um, to this interview many times on the show before, but a perfect example of, of uh, what you were describing just now, Harrison, was evident in the interview that Kathy Newman gave with Jordan Peterson uh, about a year, year and a half ago, where there was this constant attempt to knock him on his heels and just try and subvert and undercut anything he was trying to say. So uh, you know, her her whole goal wasn't to bring out any new information or data or to learn anything, but but simply to be able to diminish uh, Jordan Peterson and his message. And and the message she was delivering uh, was largely based on history. And facts and uh, failures of of certain movements like socialism, like uh, Marxism, um, quite often in the twentieth century, and uh, and that's that I think is one of the main reasons why uh, looking at um, Hicks's information and and the idea of postmodernism or the ideas espoused by postmodernism um, are kind of crucial to getting um, behind or understanding uh, these things that we're seeing today. Um, There's an important distinction that uh, he makes early on in the chapter, I think, uh, which also reminded me a bit of, you know, what the the Kathy Newmans of the world represent and what the Jordan Petersons of the world represent. Hicks writes, For the modernist, The functionality of language is complementary to its being cognitive. An individual observes reality perceptually, forms conceptual beliefs about reality on the basis of those perceptions, and then acts in reality on the basis of those perceptual and conceptual cognitive states. Some of those actions in the world are social interactions. And in some of those social interactions, language assumes a communicatory function in communicating with each other individuals narrate argue or otherwise attempt to pass on their cognitive beliefs about and about the world rhetoric then is an aspect of languages communicatory function referring to those methods of using language that aid in the effectiveness of cognition during linguistic communication for the postmodernist Language cannot be cognitive because it does not connect to reality, whether to an external nature or an underlying self. Language is not about being aware of the world or about distinguishing the true from the false or even about argument in the traditional sense of validity, soundness, and probability. Accordingly, postmodernism recasts the nature of rhetoric. Rhetoric is persuasion in the absence of cognition. So the way he's framing this is that there there is a whole, and he gets into this a little further, there's this whole kind of postmodern approach to discussion, to debate towards communication, which rests upon the the never-ending subjective analysis of language and the language used to describe the meaning of language and the language used to describe the meaning of the language that's being used to describe the meaning of the language. It's like this kind of Schrodinger's cat of, of, um, of meaning. And ultimately, um, what he gets to here is that there is a nihilistic uh, mindset at the root of all of this, that there is... There is no uh there is no value for or affirmation of an objective truth um, or 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 real facts uh that can be uh, ascertained and shared um among postmodernists. And uh and that's that's one of the big tensions that we're seeing right now among uh many of the more radically liberal and uh and um versus the the kind of mainstream conservative middle of the road uh person who um who is just trying to get trying to uh keep their head above water against all of this kind of onslaught of of politically correct and leftist arguments because there is no winning there is no there isn't even a common language or or uh, um yeah or a common language that that can be uh used between two people that come from from these uh these these opposite ends of the spectrum and this is um what jonathan Haidt has gotten into without explicitly calling it um, postmodernism uh, and uh you know he'll he'll ascribe moral taste buds to this this sentient this uh Dichotomy between the, the the two political spectrums, um, but really, what what we're seeing here is a, an outgrowth of of postmodernist thinking um, at its worst.
0: Well, the one thing that is really striking to me is like how's, how you're describing. Uh, you brought up Kathy Newman, and you brought up um, just a, a number of different examples of how this rhetorical strategy plays out, and um, you know, if it if it is all political, you know, if if primarily, as you pointed out, Harrison, it is political. The the politics drives the epistemology, or rather, uses that epistemology to di- to divert attention away from the politics. It's like if your goals are so noble as you see them, why can you not be upfront? about them. You know, if you're really, if social justice is really your primary goal and you want to help people, why do you, why is it that you have, you feel like you must resort to constant lying and shifting and covert aggression if, if it is true that social justice is what you're after. And I think that, you know, what you're looking at there is that, you know, to, to the person who's really uh, accepted that you can't be upfront or truthful or honest, that you are looking at someone who is really at war with the world in, in some way. They see themselves as a revolutionary, and they, they see themselves as against a power structure, against something that's so big Or, you know, against society, basically, against society, against reality, that you can't be upfront, you can't be truthful, because you're in it for some long, uh, you know, long uh, march through the institutions or or something like that, something to that effect. And, you know, if you you really believe that, I mean, just, you know, it's just such a, a... a bizarre way to to view human relations, you know, that it's all about, you know, power, power games. It seems like, you know, you're like you're just some covert weird agent, you know, if that's really the way that you see the, your role in the world. And it's no wonder then that over time you, you know, the things that you supposedly think that you're fighting for lose all meaning because you've divested them of all meaning. You've divested words that you've divested yourself of all meaning. So then, you know, No wonder then, like in the last three four years, they've just been out screaming at the sky with their pants around their ankles for the for the most part. But um, so back to what you were saying about Kathy Newman, I thought um, you know she it seemed like she was using like postmodern the postmodern technique. I'm not uh, an expert in it, but of deconstruction, where basically you're just trying to take. The, uh, this idea and deconstruct it into its you know uh, real parts, like really showing what it what it really is, so that you can you know if you look at Trump, you see him as uh, you know he's he's white, he's rich, you know he's actually Hitler. You know you've you've taken apart, you've divested him of in, of any individuality, any any factual reality, and you've you've taken and you've applied this um, you know this intersectional. Uh, model to him. And now you can say he's actually Hitler. And Hicks talks about the use of this strategy in, in this chapter, because in, because it's, and it's not, um, you know, obviously you're not saying like he's actually Hitler, but what you're, or you are saying he's actually Hitler, but you might not believe it. But as he says, he says, if you hate someone and want to hurt him, then you hit him where it counts. Do you want to hurt a man who loves his children and hates child molesters? Drop hints and spread rumors that he is fond of child pornography. Do you want to hurt a woman who takes pride in her independence? Spread the word that she married the man she did because he is wealthy. The truth or falsity of the rumors does not matter. And whether those you tell uh, believe you does not really matter. What matters is that you score a direct damaging hit to someone's psyche. You know that those accusations and rumors will cause tremors, even if they come to nothing. And I think that's, you know, they have journals, entire journals devoted to identifying the, you know, the real sexist nature to the hot dog industry or how ice cream is actually racist or, you know, the, um, I can't remember the those three uh scholars who published can't remember the names of the scholars who published all those papers in those journals that whole uh controversy that erupted not too long ago but it's because they found the the language that you could use and and people bought it because it made sense to them you know it's just it's it's bizarre
1: Yeah he gives the example of the Socal affair which was a an earlier version of that type of hoax where you know, this was a physicist who published a an article in a, you know, in a leftist journal on how, what was it that physics, uh, you know, physics or uh, leftist politics like proves or gives an example of like quantum physics or something. And it was a hoax. Like he was just, he did it pr- pretty much as a joke and it got published and it was, there was a big controversy of it. And so these, you know, these pr- uh, academics that you're referring to did this, a similar thing recently and uh, to... Jordan Peterson them interview. Jordan Peterson interviewed them about it and uh, you know, they got a a lot of uh media play over it, but it was funny. So um I, yeah, too bad we can't remember them. But if you just search like, you know, hoax leftist mm-hmm. um, you know, journal articles or something, you should be able to find it. But they're pretty funny. But that comes like that that's an example of this um it's like a symptom of the the problem that you identified of this an inability to, or unwillingness to just be honest. And I think that's actually the biggest sign that something is deeply wrong, um, like in, in this whole movement, that, that lack of honesty. Because <clears throat> to me, it, it's, a, it's a tell, like it's a sign that these people know that they, that they, they can't be honest because, because they, they, they won't be able to, to justify their position. They won't be able to like uh, actually win an argument or or persuade people, like using truthful language, of the like the, the rightness of their <clears throat> of their beliefs and of their their aspirations, essentially. It's a it's a tacit admission that their strategy and their policy is somehow um, totally like wrong headed and and not feasible. And it's also uh, it's it's like I think that's where the seed of like totalitarianism is, because there's this uh, this unw- so this unwillingness or inability to to tell the truth about uh, about your motivations and what you actually want, but also um, like because of that it that opens the door for for like the the terrorization like you, that quote that you just read like that what you just described is is a that's mes- like a method of psychological terror to to take an opponent and to then like like you said so let's say there's a you know a, like a man who prides himself on his the love of his children and genuinely like loves his children well what's the worst thing you can do to that man is then well to plant the the seed of the rumor that he's actually a pedophile in some way and it's like that is that level of of um well like psychological terror is psychopathic it's like that's the type of thing that a psychopath would do um because and it's one of the i think it's like it's one of the worst sins that you can do is is to to tell a lie about someone like uh, to to that degree like everyone can can um like come to a wrong understanding of someone because they just for for whatever reason right like you you can truly believe that that someone who's innocent is guilty for whatever for whatever reason, whether it's through a certain type of media coverage or that person just being in the wrong place at the wrong time and circumstances really making them look guilty. You see this all the time with like uh, with murder trials and things like that in the in the media, um, where people like I talked about last week, where people come to a conclusion about something. Maybe it was two weeks ago that they aren't really justified coming to a conclusion to, but that doesn't stop people from having their opinions, right? Everyone's got their opinion on on everything, even when they don't have enough data, enough of the actual evidence to justify having justify having any opinion on it, essentially. So so that's one thing. Like that, that's just human nature. But to then take that to the extreme of actively telling a lie, like something that you know to be false at, like, and, and to 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 direct it in such a way at the person's like at, at a person's virtue that that it's just like the it's just truly reprehensible and that is that is the like the mo of um of the <clears throat> let's say at least a portion of like the um of the political you know this political movement is to tell outright lies about someone in order to destroy them to destroy their their political power, you know, or whatever power they might have in the world, is to just to take them out, not through not through um, like weapons or violence, but through words. This is what uh, you know what Hicks uh, comes back to repeatedly in this chapter is that it is the use of words as a weapon. It's because, um, you know, uh, he even what goes into that Nietzsche quote right about the the like the weak and the strong and how. Uh, and like the mentalities associated with like you know the the slave mentality and the master mentality and like the 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 mentality of the weak and how like the weak don't have much recourse you know to they'll lose a fight essentially with the strong so what are they left with well they're left with words so when you take a um like a when you have that when you have that mentality, that's that's what you're left with. Is you're left with your the the ability to use your words, your speech, in order to destroy a person. And to anyone who's ever had like a lie, a big lie, told about themselves, like they know not only how it feels, but the 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 the, the real life consequences that uh, that play themselves out because of something like that. And it's only like a, a very lucky person that manages to get through something like that relatively unscathed. But that right there, that like I talked about it being like the seeds of totalitarianism. Well, it's there too. It's like that's, that is the mentality of like a, you know a, um, a totalitarian like, police state, like the, the, the judicial or the legal system in a, in a, in a pathocracy, is to, to destroy a person not because of the crimes that they've done, but because of their virtue. And essentially their virtue has become a crime in that system. And because the the people like the people now in power don't see that as a virtue, they see virtue as a crime they see it as something that is that is reprehensible and this ties back to the like the three three possibilities for this you know the the the, the tying together of this philosophy with this politics is um like there's the the Machiavellian one which I kind of described a bit um, and then the the third one which is the just you believe both of them. It's just this kind of like inner contradictory, um, like state of cognitive dissonance that you're in, which I, you know, as I said, that's that's normal too. Like people do believe contradictory things. So I think if you, if we like put this in a ponderological like perspective, if we go back to political Ponderology by Andrew Lobachevsky and, and look at what's going on here, it's like, uh, I'd guess that the that the even the majority of people um, who hold like the, the postmodern leftist belief system, you know, see it as being true in some way, that they actually do, some part of them believes both things to be true. You know, on, on three days of the week, they're, uh, they're, they're skeptical in their epistemology. They, they believe that there's no such thing as truth and that, uh, you know, no one opinion is better than the other. And on the other three days or three other days of the week, they, uh, they actually believe that they're right, that their beliefs are true and that certain things are good or bad. And then maybe on Sunday they you know do whatever they want. Maybe they've got a, another set of beliefs, but um, but yeah, that's what normal people tend to be like. They you know they don't really think f- things through very much. It's like you, you talk to most people, they'll hold you know ten. They can you can have a conversation with someone where they they espouse ten contradictory beliefs in the in the, in the space of a, a short conversation. It's like it's it's pretty normal. So I think that's where the majority of people are. It's like they've basically been indoctrinated into this. This philosophy. So they, you know, they. I mean, I took uh, one of my university courses was a, a religious studies course and it was kind of like introduction to the study of religion or something like that. So every lecture was a different approach to the study of religion, like from a historical perspective. So, um, you know, so there was the sociological perspective, you know, the, the Marxist perspective, the, um, the history of religion's perspective, etc. And so it got to the end of the, it was getting to the end of the semester, and, um, you know, we hadn't gone through the whole te- the, the whole textbook, so our professor kind of gave the class the option. He's like, "Okay, we've got uh we've got a few chapters left, so I'm going to leave it open to you guys. Do you want the um um I think there was uh I can't remember what one of the options was, but there was one option that seemed kind of well, the, the class didn't think it was very interesting. But then there was the postmodernist feminist option, and everyone's like, "Oh yeah, we want to do that one." And he's like, "Well, okay." So he did the, he did that. He gave that lecture, you know, the next week. And afterwards, he said, yeah, you guys do, do do you regret your decisions like you pro- you're probably wishing that we you know we did the the other one and everyone's like yeah because it just cuz it was so crazy, right? So and even just from that one, you know, that one class of the postmodern perspective, if you imagine, well I, you know, I can imagine now taking a a a whole like series of classes, a whole set of classes where that is the predominant, you know, narrative and that would be it would be like mind torture to go through that for more than a single lecture um and so you so you can so i can easily imagine you know all these students going through going th- through their classes and then you know in class you, you're basically told oh well here's the here's the way it is and um a lot and that gains converts it's like um you know it won't it won't convert everyone but you know people will go through their courses and it just becomes like it's it's just the air that they're breathing now you know um that it's just—it's the language they now speak, and it's the—it just forms the kind of like uh, it just—it just forms their the, the shape of their thoughts into that shape from now on. So you talk to people who who have like majored in um, you know these liberal arts courses or degrees, and and that's just the way they speak. It's like it's kind of the un, unquestioned um, like base of their worldview, or just the un, un the unquestioned premises of their new worldview. And it'll, it'll, um, so they'll state it, you know, they'll state those beliefs and those, those premises as, um, as if they really believe them because some part of them does, you know, even if it's just a very shallow part of their mind, it still, they, it still believes in these, um, in these positions, but, you know, another part of them will still believe, like you said, that, uh, sexism and racism are objectively evil, um, that, that their position is objectively true, um, that you know that it's it's objectively bad that the you know the third world doesn't have the access to the technology that is objectively bad um so it just it forms these contradictions that um that uh that might be obvious to someone who's who, who can spot them, you know, because it, it doesn't take much to spot them, but, you know, once you once you see the contradiction, it's very easy to, to spot, you know, after that. But then, you, you know, so you confront a person with their contradictions. Well, what happens when you confront a person with their contradictions? I mean, probably 99 times out of 100, they're not going to respond rationally. Be like, oh, I never thought about that that is a deeply contradictory set of beliefs that I'm holding. I'm going to have to question that now, rethink that through to find out, you know, the source of that contradiction and what I have to change about my core beliefs to, to reconcile that, you know, that position. It's like, no, it's just, you know, screw you. Um, that's just your opinion. I'm going to believe what I want to believe because I'm right. So, so you have, so you have this, this indoctrination now where, where you can believe co- these mutually contradictory things um, at whenever, uh, whenever necessary, whenever, it's, whenever the, the opportunity arises where you need one of those positions, it's like, okay, now I need to be a, a skeptic, so I'm going to be a skeptic. Well, now I need to actually believe in something, so I'm going to believe in something. And that creates like your, your typical leftist, like far-left activist. But where does, the, where does the Machiavellian come in so this um this reminds me of that uh <clears throat> the well Jordan Peterson made this observation several times, and we talked about it on a on a previous show, but uh might have been one of the ponderology shows where he was talking about one of the um uh one of the talks that he gave you know i think it was in, in Toronto, I can't remember, but where there was a group of activists that were there. And you know, and he he said, Well, most of them were just your average, you know, activists, but there were one or two in there who who says were were there to cause trouble. You know, those were and I'm pretty sure in one of those talks he even said they were probably psychopaths. And because within this milieu, you know, within this postmodernist movement, there are the like the true Machiavellians. So these are the people that for whom the epistemology is just a weapon you know this is these are the people who are aware of their own use of language as a weapon because they're like uh psychopaths Uh, it comes naturally to them it's what they've been doing since they were children they've been using language as a mask um in order to to dupe other people dupe other people into thinking that they that they care that they're trustworthy um you know that they're that they're, they're not heartless bastards essentially that will screw you over uh, you know as soon as it becomes um, even slightly beneficial and to to the psychopath and even even at times when it's not beneficial just for the sake of screwing you over um, so they're they're trained trained liars essentially trained um, trained and skilled in the in the ways of using language just to you know, as a as an expert <laughs> expert lawyer, maybe you know, trained in the in the use of rhetoric in order to just convince you of something, knowing full well that their that you're that their position is, um, you know, not the not the winning argument essentially. So, those I, I'd say that the I'd, I'd I'd guess that the majority of the people that use that technique that that you that you quoted, you know, from Hicks about the, you know, um, Smearing, a, you know, a loving father with the label of being a pedophile, or you know, having some child pornography or whatever, or smearing an independent woman with the the idea that she's just a gold digger. Um, those like that. That's why I call that a psychopathic thing. It's like because that's the thing that a, a psychopath will do without thinking twice. It's just like, well, well, how do I win? Well, what's the what's the one thing I can do to this person to just totally, completely destroy their life. Um, well, that's the thing I'm gonna do. And it's the, and like the one of the, so the, that's kind of the, the reason that that um, this postmodern leftist politics is the perfect breeding ground for for not only um, like psychopathic operators, but for totalitarianism, is that it's created this culture of concealment and lying. And this culture of, of uh, Total lack of respect for the truth because in that environment, um, like even the, ordin- the the relatively normal you know or ordinary people they they're already practicing a bit of self deception and other deception. you know it's unclear how you know, aware they may be of it, but they're already practicing it, so they're already engaging in the type of arguments like um, so just trying to, to to shut the person up. Um, Just for the sake of shutting them up, because, you know, from their postmodern training, they know, you know, or a part of them knows that um, there is no true, you know, no, uh, like truth or falsehood. It's just, it's just competing power games using language, which doesn't refer to anything. So it's like, I'm just, okay, so you're getting in an argument with me. I'm now in a power game with you. Here's the way I win the power game truth doesn't enter into it it's not something to be considered because it doesn't exist it's like all i know is that i'm in a power a power game a, a conflict with you and you are the one with the power you are representing the powerful like the oppressors so therefore i am morally justified in defeating you by any means necessary because you know it's that that's just the way that power games are played and then hopefully by defeating you and by defeating all of you like my team will then be the ones in to, to have power and that will be good because we because we by our very nature by our you know class or intersectional nature are good and you are evil so you have this this environment now that allows for um, allows for, it's like you you let it you, well, what are some of the phrases like? You give an inch and they take a mile. So you give you give this um, this mendaciousness, this mendacity, an inch by by um, by leaving behind the the their respect for truth. And what you get is people who have absolutely no regard for truth and who are completely malevolent, who are then free to operate within this environment. So then you'll get people making claims like, you know, claims like that against, uh, against virtuous people, virtuous people who happen to be like successful. So um, it's, it's just, um, well, that's just like the, that's the seeds for the creation of an eventual pathocracy. That's why this, like a movement like this has, that's the trajectory that it's on. It's not. It's not going anywhere. Nice, despite all of the all of the statements about, um, um, well, how would you describe it? It's like uh, there's this, like, mask of of self righteousness and and of holiness. Even it's like here are the people representing um, representing the oppressed, representing the people that are that are you know stamped down by the by the the, the evil malevolent um, like rulers of the world. Um, these are the people on the on the side of good, like the the true Christians, even though they don't like religion. It's like these are the people r- representing the downtrodden, and and you know wanting a, this wanting cosmic justice. And so, how can you how can you criticize that? Right, these people are obviously good and and holy and angelic like beings like bringing the bring like channels of goodness into the world by by standing up for for the underdog and the oppressed it's like so how can you possibly not get behind them well that's the you know that's the dark aspect of this is that that's how unfortunately that's how evil comes into the world that's how like well one type of evil comes into the world is through the through a mask of of goodness it's like well, I'm representing. So you have take the look at the position of the psychopath in this one of these psychopathic activists in this environment. It's like, well, I'm I I am adopting the the position of goodness for my own aims, so that I can get power, so that I can now exercise that power in a way that the the current powers that be you know can't even imagine. It's like I, I'm I'm going to be ten times worse than them, and all these suckers that are supporting me don't even realize that. Um, you know that they're going to be the the first to the guillotine um, because they don't mean anything to me. It's like that's the that's the environment that is being bred by this this use of uh, of postmodern philosophy tied to to leftist politics. And unfortunately, unfortunately, that's the only way it can go because, like um, like Hicks points out, it's like the, the 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 leftist politics that that is being espoused is this um, has its roots in the last couple you know two three two hundred years or so. Um, um, and and like these forms of socialism, and every every new form of this socialist philosophy has been disproven, like by history, that it doesn't work. So one of Hicks's arguments is that that one of the like I I went back to Kierkegaard and like the self defense mechanism of adopting a skeptical position in order to justify one's belief or uh, in order to to justify keeping a belief that has been um persuasively argued against in some capacity. So so with the with the socialist position it's like here are all these social socialist experiments that have failed. Um and here are all of like well first of all you've got the theorists. So here are all the philosophers that show why they why they fail. It's like well you can dismiss those. It's like oh well they don't know what they're talking about. We just have to try it and see if it works. So uh, you know several countries, dozens and dozens of countries have tried, and it has failed. And um, dozens of of countries have tried to institute this equality. It has failed, like, remarkably. So what is the response to that? The response is, well, oh, there's a quote from from Richard Rorty, one of the philosophers. Um, Go to, can you give me page 179? Mm -hmm. Um, I just want to read that because it's kind of a... So Richard Rorty, he's a, a skeptical philosopher. So he, write, he writes, um, okay, so I'll just read the, the, uh, what Hicks writes before getting to Rorty's quote. So if one is interested in, in truth, then one's rational response to a failing theory is as follows. One breaks the theory down into its constituent premises. One questions its premises vigorously and checks the logic that integrates them. One seeks out alternatives to the most questionable premises. One accepts moral responsibility for any bad consequences of putting the false theory into practice. This is not what we find in postmodern reflections on contemporary politics. Truth and rationality are, subject, are truth, and ra- truth and rationality are subjected to attack, and the prevailing attitude about moral responsibility is again best stated by Rorty. quote, "I think that a good left." Is a party that always thinks about the future and doesn't care much about our past sins, and it's like, okay, well, that's that's uh, just completely idiotic um, and totally like morally reprehensible because it's like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna forget about all the times, all the past times that these ideas have failed, and just keep trying because one of these times it's gonna work, like one of these times we're gonna be able to to you know have. Um, universal, universal, like participatory democracy, where things don't spiral down into, you know, into corruption and and mass murder. It's like, well, that's unfortunately, that's kind of the way things work. Because, like, well, that's a whole other discussion on the, like, the, you know, the just the the nature of. It goes back to to what Lobachevsky describes about the way societies like just structure themselves, the way individuals like structure themselves within groups. Um, the the ideals like the, the utopian vision of of these like socialist philosophies don't work because they don't well for one they don't work on that scale it's impossible for that for such a s- system to work on a mass scale because like it'll work among a group of of family and friends it'll work in like a you know an Israeli kibbutz it'll work in a in a small community where everyone joins voluntarily. The instant, like, the the, the minute you pass, like, several hundred members or a thousand members, um, you end up getting individuals that are in the group who don't want to be there, who don't, who aren't voluntary participants in the, the socialist experiment. Now, Unfortunately, every, you know, practically every town and city and country has a population more than a few hundred or thousand. So it's not going to work because what do you do to the what do you do with all of the people who don't want to be there? That will require then the totalitarian response. That will require the you know the strong arm of the government to come in and coerce and oppress the people that don't want to be there. And that's the so the the, the only way you can have a utopia is by bashing in a few heads. And uh, well, again, unfortunately. That that is even accepted as a as a premise for a lot of these leftist um, you know political activists you know they totally acknowledge that it's like the only way that we're that they are going to get power is by bashing in a few heads and uh, again unfortunately for some of them it's like well however many people we have to 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 kill you know or to eliminate in order to get that that utopia it's going to be worth it and that's the you know that's the kind of mindset that that uh motivates i'd say like the at least just the the most reprehensible faction among the you know the people in this kind of movement
2: well i was thinking of um just how of a fertile ground uh the u.s is for for this type of thinking and movement uh in how narcissistic um we have become and how narcissism has been nurtured among many people um so, you mentioned Hicks is uh, alluding to Nietzsche, and one of the ideas he brings up is uh, Nietzsche's idea of resentment, which is, um, you know, we all know about resentment, feeling bitter about something, uh, feeling um, uh, slighted, uh, disenfranchised, uh, laid low. Well, resentment is this kind of um, bitterness taken to this whole other extreme where an individual experiences everything they are and everything they have and their future in this prism of of being a victim basically of being um, uh, the weak but along with considering themselves uh, weak would also go um, or be accompanied by these ideas about themselves as being um, uh, kind of like you were saying Harrison you know morally just um, some of the words that are that are used by hicks are um, well let me just read a little bit from it because it, it it goes a long way in explaining the mindset of many of the people who uh, fall prey to this type of thinking um, what he says is Nietzsche's concept of resentment is close to the english resentment but with a more curdled bitterness more seething and poisoned and bottle up for a long time Nietzsche uses resentment in the context of developing his famous account of master and slave morality in Beyond Good and Evil and more systematically in Genealogy of Morals. Master morality is the morality of the vigorous, life-loving, strong. It is the morality of those who love adventure, who delight in creativity, and in their own sense of purposefulness and assertiveness. Slave morality is the morality of the weak, the humble those who feel victimized and afraid to venture forth into the big bad world weaklings are chronically passive mostly because they are, fr- are afraid of the strong as a result the the weak feed the weak feel frustrated they cannot get what they want out of life they become envious of the strong and they also secretly start to hate themselves for being so cowardly and weak but no one can live thinking he or she is hateful and so the weak invent a rationalization. A rationalization that tells them they are good. And the moral, because they are good, humble and passive. Patience is a virtue, they say. And so is humility. And so is obedience. And so is being on the side of the weak and the downtrodden. And of course the, opposite, the opposites of these things are evil. Aggressiveness is evil. And so is pride. And so is independence. And so is being physically and materially successful. But of course it is a rationalization. And a smart weakling is never quite going to convince himself of it. That will do damage inside. Meanwhile, the strong will be laughing at him. And that will do damage inside. And the strong and the rich will be carrying on getting stronger and richer and enjoying life. And seeing that will do damage inside. Eventually, the smart weakling will feel such a combination of self-loathing and envy of his enemies that he will need to lash out. He will feel the urge to hurt, in any way he can, his hated enemy. But of course, he cannot risk, risk direct physical confrontation. He is a weakling. His only weapons are words. And so, Nietzsche argued, the weakling becomes extremely clever with words. So um, this, is a, this is a sad state of affairs, and uh, getting back to Peterson, I- exactly why he's exhorting people to strengthen themselves, to take on responsibility, to uh, carry their, choose across, first of all, an aim, a purpose, or things that are meaningful uh, individually. And instead of trying to top down Change the entire system to make things uh, better uh, for themselves, even though ostensibly they're saying that it's it's to be better for everyone else. Uh, to make to make their own lives better, to take responsibility for their own lives. Um, so it's not only it's not only cultural Marxism uh, and postmodernism and and the socialist ideas that would have movements come and wreck things and start all over because this time it'll be different uh, but it, it's also um, it's also this kind of unwillingness uh, that individuals have of, of seeing the ways to empower themselves to, uh, to become more individuated uh, to, to build themselves up uh, financially um, socially uh, and in whatever ways that would constructively make their lives better for themselves. Um, so this is a this is a really this is a bottom-up approach that uh, that that would seem to be uh, the most salutary for for any individual who who does feel disenfranchised to take for themselves. And um, you know, this isn't something, that uh, this is the kind of diametrical opposite um, approach that postmodernism would have you uh, take towards um, towards life, towards viewing the world, towards viewing yourself in the world, uh, towards um, towards self actualization. You're 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 meant to project all of your dissatisfactions and all of your um, your your difficulties onto uh an an oppressed other group and identify with them and and you know like you were saying before harrison uh right, take this kind of righteous position um that's supposed to be uh seen as selfless and and um and noble and um and help the other guy uh so it's it's a very deceptive um strategy for life and um you know like i said a little bit earlier uh i think i think most of the people who who take this sort of mindset and approach using words as weapons and and uh and projecting their own dissatisfactions onto the um real or perceived injustices against others uh for their own i mean this is a this is something that it, that it's not a it's not a constructive strategy. It's something that that's ultimately doomed to failure. Do um, you have anything to add to that, Corey? Um, yeah, I was I when you were saying that I thought of the the fact
0: that in you know the world that we live in the opposite of hell is not uh, utopia. We you don't get we don't get to have utopia. Clearly, it's not going to happen. But we don't get to have nice things. We don't get to have the best thing in the, ever for all eternity. Heaven on earth is not going to happen. You no matter how much you believe that you are God and that you can make it happen, that's that's just a gateway for <laughs> Satan himself probably to manifest on the earth. But it's the opposite of utopia of hell is uh, is responsibility as Jordan Peterson is pointed out like that's the closest thing that we can do to to heaven and to making life better is our own personal responsibility and if that involves in some way helping others you know in some you know if it's social justice it, like actual form of sof- social justice manifests because of that then that's radically different than the social justice movement you know trademark copyrighted it's a uh, because as we've been pointing out in the show, at the very heart of it um, is this radical lie, a radical contradiction between power politics and relativism. And as you were pointing out, Harrison, that relativism does goes a long way in terms of shielding yourself from criticism because you believe that you are true and right and good no matter what and that you decide that, you get to decide that, um, and nobody else gets to, but, and it also shields yourself or prevents you. It blinds you from the truth. You know, this, that radical switch between, um, contradictory beliefs is very, very good at keeping you from actually being honest with yourself. And when you combine that kind of radical relativism and the lying to yourself and the lying to, to other people with the desire to control other people, then what you're manifesting on the earth, no matter how much you want to pretend or tell everyone that it's good, it's, it's not You're you're a blind tool at that point. And one thing that I wanted to just wanted to mention about, that whole that way of treating facts as being your personal tool your personal you know they it doesn't matter if i you know it's all just a, a a tool that i can use i can i'll say this and it might not be true but if it gets me what i want then that's then that's fine well that's um i remember reading a, a book by a psychoanalyst on the psychopathic mind and he was and he wrote in there that uh, that that was his way of theorizing how the psychopath viewed the facts. Like the psychopath knows that facts exist and knows basically what a fact is, but the psychopath has no respect for a fact. Like, the fact has no weight, no moral eh, no moral excitation, really, that you know that something is a fact, and so you respect it. It's external to you. You are subservient to it. It's a part of reality. It, these, so when you say these are the facts, for most people, that's just a self-evident, you know, like the Declaration of Independence, self-evident truth. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. You know, these, the reality is reality, and there's no get you if you as soon as you believe that you can decide what reality is to suit your own whims then you are embodying this psychopathic attitude to Towards reality. And then at that point, when you as soon as as soon as you've done that, as soon as your movement is treating reality in that way, then like you said, Harrison, it's only a matter of time before you start seeing like all these fake hate crime hoaxes, these these slanders, these lies used in maliciously in order to attack other people, because the truth doesn't matter. The consequences to your actions don't matter. All that matters is that you get power because deep down You still believe that you're good, but you've been blinded to what you're really doing. You've been completely blinded to what the people who are actually good and the thing that you're bringing into the world, you're not, you're not seeing it for what it really is. You're, you're being uh, used as a tool. And so, yeah, that's the, that's the, the bottom line. That's the problem. You, you, you think you're bringing utopia, but you are you know the road like they said the road to hell is paved with good intentions and that's this that's what we're seeing it in real time how it works and you'll you're taking everybody else down you're ruining the progress that your movement cr- that led to you know the past 50 years there's been tremendous progress nobody wants to see a loss of tolerance for for you know the whatever the lgbtq nobody wants to see a rise in racism a rise in sexism mm-hmm. nobody wants nobody in their right mind who is actually a liberal wants to see these things and so that's what really irritates a lot of people about the movement is that you know now you're starting to see a decline in tolerance the you know the several polls uh, that we've had up on SOT uh, the past week have shown a decline, over, like you know five ten percent over the past you know five or ten years, and it and it's probably only going to get worse because of this this sinister very sinister attempt to to create their own reality blindly, you know like it's 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 going to backfire and it is backfiring. And that's a frightening thing too. It's yeah. Yeah.
2: Go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna add to that, Corey, that um you know, and, and what's so especially awful about this sort of thing is that all of the more kind of uh um let's say confident or, or mainstream uh minorities or, or groups uh like homosexuals and, and racial minorities and uh, they're all going to be. They're all going to be victimized. They're all going to be kind of lumped in with with uh, the worst, most uh, most radicalized uh, elements of of their peer group, um, and that's the really sad thing. The other thing I wanted to comment on is um, this reminds me of a, a book I think by Gary Zukav uh, that I'd read some time ago, where you know he talks about two kinds of power, essentially. Uh, One is an authentic power, and one is a uh, a kind of external power. And um, where, you know, ideally, uh, most people have a a kind of healthy balance between the two, Uh, or or are at least working on um, an an authentic uh, power and and for lack of a better term, a soul strength or a mind strength—the kind of healthy, uh, a healthy sense of themselves and a, and a healthy sense of what they're um, what they're about and what they want to accomplish and what their values are and um, what they're respectful of and why. And um, there is this there is this worship of uh, of all the trappings of of uh, external power. That um, and narcissism that are un- unfortunately the the kind of firmament from which many people uh, grow out of, where you know they they can't see themselves or haven't trained themselves or haven't been brought up to uh, think about uh, how their lives can be any other way uh, outside of this this really awful image of what uh, a successful Uh, person or self looks like and 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 you know what they're about so um there is that and uh if if that's everything today unless we had anything to add maybe we'll bring this show to a close um and we thank you for listening today folks on mind matters we look forward to seeing you again real soon and uh until we meet again, take care. Hit like and subscribe.
1: <laughs> bye bye.
2: Bye bye.